This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast. Podcast where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Cryolophosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news to catch up on. But first, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Yes, thank you. We're still on our way towards our next goal, where we will give out some awesome stickers, but... In the meantime, we really appreciate our current supporters, and if you guys have any suggestions or tips or dinosaur requests, then please let us know. And to our top patrons, the ones pledging us $20 a month, which is amazing, you should have already received a copy of the Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2015. We published that recently. It's available now on Amazon for Kindle, and if you read it and enjoy it, then please leave us a review. We're also happy to announce that we have a winner of our giveaway with our joint giveaway between Everything Dinosaurs Weebly. So congratulations to Pendega from Indonesia. And Taylor from Everything Dinosaurs Weebly has mailed the Dinosaur Lords book and it should be on its way. So enjoy. And thanks to everybody who participated in the giveaway. So first in the news, on a little bit of a sad note, Michael Hanlon, the founder and CEO of Jurassica, which we talked about in our best of episode and we're both really excited about, unfortunately died on February 9th of 2016 and his funeral was on the 27th of February in Camberwell, London. He was a well-known science journalist, being the science editor for the Daily Mail for 10 years and he was also the author of many popular science books about all sorts of interesting things, including The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a great book. He didn't write The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but he wrote a book about it. Oh, okay. I was going to ask. Yeah. Apparently, it coincided with one of the TV shows or something. Hmm. He also convinced David Attenborough to become an early patron in Jurassica and found the architect who is now designing the site of Jurassica pro bono. So Wow did a ton of work getting that off the ground and the current board is still working on Jurassica. It didn't stop when he passed away and they say that they're now seeking planning permission which I'm not sure if that's a British term. It kind of sounds like in the U.S. what we would call like zoning legislation or something. Basically making sure that they'll be allowed to build what they want to build on the land assuming that they already own the land. And they hope to be done with their planning permission by the end of 2017. So it's sad, but it's nice that he started this big project that looks like it'll keep going on. It would be a good legacy. Yeah, it would. 
On a happier note, in the Museum of Geology and Paleontology in Palermo, Italy, a PhD student named Alessandro Cirenza found a forgotten dinosaur femur bone in a drawer. So he and Andrea Cao, a researcher from the University of Bologna, examined the bone and they found it belonged to an ablosaur, which is a carnivorous dinosaur that probably had feathers. It would have lived in what is now North Africa, and it may have been up to 30 feet or 9 meters long and weighed 1 to 2 tons, which makes it one of the largest known ablosaurs. And knowing this helps paleontologists figure out how large ablosaurs may have grown, and they also found that this ablosaur may not have lived near other predators as previously thought. Andrea Cow said, quote, As Stephen Gould, an influential paleontologist and evolutionary biologist, once said, sometimes the greatest discoveries are made in museum drawers, <laughs> end quote. Yeah, it's not the first time we've seen a good discovery come from a pre-existing bone. Mm-hmm. Wonder how many other secrets are in museum drawers. Yeah. The next news item is pretty related. It's called Record-Breaking Pain, the Largest Number and Variety of Forelimb Bone Maladies in a Theropod Dinosaur. And I say it's related because the authors eventually mention that a lot of bones aren't characterized for injuries, so... There might be a bunch of those in museum drawers, too, that nobody knows about. It was written by Phil Center and Sarah Junkst. The title of the article really says it all, and we've talked a lot about dinosaur injuries in the past, but new records are always worth talking about, so it's pretty cool that this one is the most injured theropod, really. <laughs> so specifically, the injuries were all on a Dilophosaurus, which was our episode of the day back in episode 18, and if you don't remember what Dilophosaurus is, it's the 20-foot-long Jurassic theropod with a V-shaped crest on its head. And if you watched Jurassic Park, it's the dog-sized, poison-spitting dinosaur with the frill sticking out of its neck, <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously quite a bit different than what it was probably like in real life, but it did have the same crest as the real one did. There is a great picture in the article that shows a reconstruction of the Dilophosaurus, and has little markings on all the points of its body where it was probably injured and where the abnormalities were found. The center and Junkst say that, quote, only six non-avian theropod skeletons are known to have pathological features on more than one bone of the pectoral girdle and or forelimb, end quote. Which makes this one pretty unique, being, you know, one of six. And they created a list of 25 possible symptoms that are seen in modern birds, mammals, and non-bird reptiles to try to figure out what the injuries are. And it's a pretty clever idea to use the modern birds, mammals, and non-bird reptiles because since dinosaurs are kind of bracketed by modern birds and other reptiles and they actually have different health problems, if you include both of the groups, you have a pretty good idea of what the types of injuries dinosaurs could have had are. And then they compared the abnormalities on the fossils with their list of 25 possible symptoms, and they came up with eight distinct injuries. So now I have to go through them because I'm sure everybody's wondering what all are the injuries. <laughs> there is a fracture on the left scapula, which on humans is the shoulder blade, but they said that on humans the most likely way to injure the scapula is by falling, and... A lot of that is because the shoulder blade is on the back of our body, so you don't really hit it into things very often. But on Dilophosaurus, the scapula is actually on the side of its rib cage, so it could have injured it much more easily and likely injured it from running into something. And they point out that 
animals like ostriches, when they're pinned in for livestock, sometimes injure their scapulas in similar ways, like running into trees and stuff like that. Another thing was that it had fractured its left radius, which is part of the forearm, and it also had a healed infection in its left ulna, which is the other part of the forearm. The left thumb had three fibrocesses, which is a word I had never seen before, but it's similar to an abscess, which is, you know, I don't really want to describe it. It's kind of gross. Anyway, (laughs) it was probably caused by a bacterial infection after a puncture wound. It basically caused indentations in the bone where there was bone missing. The right humerus is twisted about 35 degrees more than the left, and that indicates that it might have been preferring its right arm when the left arm was injured with that fracture that I mentioned. The right humerus also has three tumors, and they're not sure why these developed, but they think that they're so big that they might have been cancer. Poor Dilophosaurus. (laughs) Yeah, it's not doing so hot, or wasn't doing so hot. One of the bones on its third finger of its right hand is also really deformed and bent to the side to the point where the authors think that it was permanently extended, meaning it couldn't bend its finger at all. And they can't tell why exactly that happened, although they did rule out arthritis, which is the one that I probably would have jumped to, and they guessed that it might have injured it while it was favoring that arm while the other one was broken. Gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So, the authors say, quote, It is possible that the entire array of fractures and punctures is the result of a single high-energy encounter. For example, the fractures may have been caused by a collision with a tree or a rock wall during a fight in which a conspecific or a prey item caused the puncture wounds with the hand and or toe claws, end quote. And that it definitely survived the traumatic events because there is good evidence of healing. So that would have been quite a fight if it managed to break all those bones and then later on damage a bunch of other stuff, cancer, oof. So I was pretty surprised that it was able to survive after all those injuries, but the authors think that they have an explanation. Quote, the survival of the animal despite these ailments therefore suggests a prolonged period of fasting or subsisting on prey small enough to be dispatched with the mouth and or feet alone or with the use of only one forelimb. It is also a testament to the hardiness of the animal that doubtlessly experienced an agonizingly long duration, or durations, of high degrees of pain in multiple locations. End quote. So that's pretty telling of how tough some of the dinosaurs were. During one of our episodes, we talked about how T-Rex may have fallen down and not been able to break its fall and then broken ribs and then died. And I was starting to think of theropods as a little bit fragile because if you're running and you fall down and all of a sudden you have a death sentence, you know, it seems like you're not very durable. But this one broke its arm and had tumors, couldn't even use one of the fingers on the arm it needed to use. Yeah. (laughs) So Life of a dinosaur. Pretty rough. Yeah. That guy was definitely really tough. Or girl. And like we were talking about earlier, there is a good chance that this isn't the most injured theropod ever discovered and really just the most injured theropod that's been described because the authors point out that a lot of times when describing a new dinosaur, they don't even go into any detail at all about deformities or abnormalities. And part of that is because deformities can be mistaken from the distortion of the bones after the dinosaur dies and they're buried 
Like we've talked about how skulls can change shape a little bit while they're buried before they fossilize. So it's kind of hard to tell just how injured this one was compared to all the others. But it definitely had a lot of injuries, so could be the most injured. Yep, that's pretty depressing. <laughs> but it survived for a while. Yeah, we don't know how lo much longer. They said, well, there was one thing saying that in birds, healing an injury like this would take at least six weeks. So they figure that's a pretty long time. But then they said in reptiles, it can take, I think, six months to a year. In modern reptiles, at least. So, mm -hmm. you know. Wow. Somewhere between six weeks and a year, it must have survived. And no painkillers. Yeah. Yikes. Just two fingers on one hand. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> or Dilophosaurus. Yeah. So, in other news, in Alberta, Canada, scientists have found Elmosaur bones, which are one of the first dinosaurs found both in North America and Mongolia. This find helps prove that dinosaurs migrated between Asia and North America, probably via a land bridge. And knowing more about related dinosaurs that lived on both continents can help paint a more global picture of dinosaurs in the Mesozoic era. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And of course, Alberta, Canada, so I'm talking about Dr. Phil Curry. He wasn't the only one, but yeah, he was involved. He's the main guy up there. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a little bit about the land bridge before, too. We were talking about T-Rex going over it potentially and things. Mm -hmm. It's good that they're finding more and more evidence. Next in the news is an article published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, which is behind a paywall. So a lot of this came from the Smithsonian, because apparently they have a subscription. <laughs> The article is titled, The Cretaceous Paleogene Boundary Deposit in the Gulf of Mexico, Large-Scale Oceanic Basin Response to the Chicxulub Impact. It was written by Jason C. Sanford and others. And Sanford used to work for the University of Texas, but now does oil exploration for Chevron. And he appears to have used the large amount of data and resources available to oil companies in the Gulf of Mexico to make some really interesting conclusions. Specifically, Sanford and his team used the data from 408 wells in the North Gulf of Mexico and extrapolated their findings to the rest of the Gulf. They used a type of seismic vibration measurements that, when reflected back, give a 3D impression of the subsurface. And that sounds kind of like Jurassic Park. So they used that seismic technology as well as data from these wells that were drilled to try to figure out what happened, basically, when the Chicxulub impact happened, you know, how much material moved around, what kind of material was moving, and what was going on. And apparently, it's actually not that complicated. I was surprised. So basically, what they did is they looked at how much material, like when you're drilling down, how much of it you go through looks like it was shifted by this meteor impact or otherwise created. And then they can use the data from the different positions to figure out what the distribution in the Gulf of Mexico was probably like, and therefore how much material moved around. So ultimately, they estimated that the impact redistributed about 198,000 cubic kilometers, or 48,000 cubic miles of sediment all around the Gulf of Mexico. And that was extrapolated from the North Gulf of Mexico wells. But even in that area, they found like a quarter of that. And then I guess it was four times as big or something came up with that number. So in the abstract, they say that, quote, 
Deposit distribution suggests that the majority of sediment derived from coastal and shallow water environments throughout the Gulf via seismic and megasunomic processes initiated by the impact. In other words, the meteor hit and a huge wave went out and pulled back a ton of debris and then also earthquakes moved a bunch of debris into the Gulf of Mexico. The Smithsonian said, quote, the boundary can be less than a tenth of an inch thick in areas far from the impact site, but closer to the impact site, the layer consists of hundreds of feet of sand, gravel, cobble, and even boulders, end quote. Wow. Yeah, hundreds of feet is pretty insane. Another author of the paper, Sean Gullick, said to the Smithsonian, quote, the layer can be hundreds of meters thick. It is full of everything falling down the hill, tsunami deposits, and also the stuff that fell out of the sky. Because that's the other part of it. When the meteor hits, it knocks all this stuff way up in the air, and then it falls back down again. Pretty crazy. And it's just unfathomable to imagine 48,000 cubic miles of sediment. It's just such a huge amount of material to move. Maybe that's how that Dilophosaurus got his injuries. That was in the Jurassic on the Cretaceous. <laughs> wow. If it got hit by a different meteor. <laughs> Maybe. Or it ran into a meteor that it didn't expect to be there. <laughs> in related news, sciencemag.org reported on the upcoming drilling into the Chicxulub crater itself. And it's going to set sail at the end of March and hopefully start drilling on April 1st. And hopefully it's not an elaborate April Fool's joke. I was just going to say. <laughs> While drilling through the peak ring, they're expecting to find a section of about 150 meters or 500 feet deep of debris on top of 700 meters or almost half a mile of granite that was probably formed when the Chicxulub impact occurred, which is crazy that the impact happens and then there's now a half a mile thick piece of granite that didn't used to be there. <laughs> Just insane. The process is going to be setting up a casing around the 17 meters or 56 feet of water that's above the peak ring, and then they're going to drill down through half a kilometer or about a third of a mile of rock, which they expect to be just boring limestone. So they're basically just going to throw that away and not even look at it. And then they're going to encase the whole thing in steel and start extracting three meter or 10 foot long cores of this rock at a time. So, it, you know, basically taking out a cylinder and then inspecting it to see what the rock looked like. And they've made a lot of predictions about what they're going to find. And they're actually really specific about between 650 meters and 700 meters. We think it's going to look like this, which is pretty impressive. But we're going to wait until the actual study is done before we go into the in depth of that, because it's just all speculation right now. They do expect to spend about two months drilling, and it's a $10 million project, which is sponsored by the International Ocean Discovery Program and the International Continental Scientific Drilling Program. ScienceMag.org spoke with geophysicist Sean Gullick from the University of Texas, Austin, and co-chief scientist on the project, and he said, quote, Chicxulub is the only preserved structure with an intact peak ring that we can get to. All the other ones are either on another planet or they've been eroded, end quote. And the peak ring, it's kind of hard to describe what it is because 
it's not the edge of the crater that you'd imagine a big bowl shape. What happens is if a really big comet hits, you can imagine like a water drop going into a puddle. And the first thing that happens is that little drop pops back up. The middle kind of pops back up and sometimes, you know, pops all the way out of the water. And then it comes back down and kind of squishes a ring out and then the ring spreads. So if you freeze it where that one ripple starts, that's kind of like the peak ring. It's the, the part of the earth that goes up when it gets impacted into a peak and then it gravity pulls it back down and it squishes up a little bit at the edge. And it's actually inside the actual rim of the crater. It's pretty weird. It's kind of hard to imagine because the Earth isn't usually fluid like that. <laughs> but it's a very unique thing that you only find on huge craters, which is why they want to check it out. Makes sense. And I'm excited to see what happens, too. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they find. In other sorts of findings. We've talked about scientists working on making a chickensaurus before, and now Brazilian researcher Jao Botello and his team have studied how to change a chicken's lower leg to be more dinosaur-like. Alexander Vargas, who also worked on this, said, quote, the experiments are focused on single traits to test specific hypotheses. Not only do we know a great deal about bird development, but also about the dinosaur-bird transition, which is well-documented by the fossil record. This leads naturally to the hypotheses on the evolution of development that can be explored in the lab, end quote. We actually posted this article already on Facebook and Twitter and got some good reactions from some of you guys. Uh, somebody told us that a dinosaur leg would feed an entire family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And now for some less... Sciencey news, but still related to dinosaurs. On March 25th, a new dinosaur theme park called Dinosaur Planet will open in Bangkok, Thailand. The park can hold up to 15,000 visitors per day, and it only took one year to build, but also supposedly 500 million baht, which is the type of money in Thailand. The park has eight zones, including one where you travel back in time, another where you're at the bottom of the ocean, and they also have shows and shops and restaurants and, of course, rides. One of them's called Raptor Extreme. With the X hyphen dream. Yes. Great. <laughs> it's too bad that wasn't there when we were in Thailand. Yeah. I would have really liked to go to that. I'll have to go back. Yeah. In another part of the world, in Oregon, there's a creepy-looking dinosaur theme park called the Prehistoric Gardens. It has 23 life-size dinosaur replicas, and their dinosaurs have some very large, fake-looking eyes. Mm. We'll post a link so you can see some of the photos, but the Triceratops, to me, with its eyes and its very large grin, looks like it'd be saying, ha-cha-cha-cha. Like, uh, I don't know who it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is that a bad thing? It's just a funny thing. Okay. <laughs> ha-cha-cha-cha. You never heard that? I have not. It's before our time. I don't remember why I know it, but I'm sure there are people out there who know what I'm talking about. Okay. If you do, please let us know the reference. I don't get it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, apparently the garden was built in 1953, and you can also see an 86-foot-long Brachiosaurus. Since it was built in the 50s, are they all, like, tail-dragging and stuff like that? I didn't notice. I was more thrown off by the eyes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to go back and see. It distracts from any scientific inaccuracies because the eyes just take you in. Yes. In 
Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the founder of the chain Raising Cane, Todd Graves, has lent a Triceratops skull to the Louisiana Art and Science Museum for two years. And he bought the Triceratops in Montana recently. The skull weighs more than one ton and is one of the largest skulls discovered. And the Triceratops is nicknamed Jason, probably after Jason Phipps. Todd purchased the Triceratops from Jason and Clayton, who I think is Jason's brother. And Clayton is also known as the Dino Cowboy. I don't know what that means. Because cowboys wrangle cows. That's why he's the Dino Cowboy. He's wrangling dinosaurs. Would that make him the Dino Boy? It's not the same. <laughs> I think you're taking this too literally. <laughs> or is he a cowboy that just happens to be a dinosaur? That would be a dino cowboy, too. Mm. Like the rustlers, the T-Rexes. Oh, I see. The good dinosaur, they would be dino cowboys. I guess. They weren't rustling cows. It was like bison-type things. I guess. Anyway, thanks to Brendan from Facebook for this next one. The American Museum of Natural History in New York is opening a new exhibit on March 21st, and this exhibit will run until January 2nd, 2017, and it's called Dinosaurs Among Us. You'll be able to learn about dinosaur nests, dinosaur feathers, dinosaur brains, as well as their lungs, bones, beaks, and claws, and how dinosaurs evolved into birds. And here's the official description. Quote, the evolution of life on Earth is full of amazing episodes, but one story that really captures the imagination is the transition from the familiar charismatic dinosaurs that dominated the planet for around 170 million years into a new small airborne form, birds. The fossil record of this story grows richer by the day. So rich, in fact, that the boundary between the animals we call birds and the animals we traditionally call dinosaurs is now practically obsolete. In this special exhibition, visitors will discover how the dinosaur's extraordinary story continues today. End quote. Sounds awesome. And we went and saw that exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History about, what was it, titanosaurs or sauropods? It was just about really large sauropods. Yeah, probably titanosaurs then. It was super cool. They had all sorts of interactive things and really clever visualizations and murals and models. Yeah, especially models. how blood is pumped to a, the brain. Yeah. the best the neck. That was the best part. They had a big model of a sauropod that was probably life-size, but not the biggest one. And it wasn't the whole body either. It was mostly like the midsection of it and a little bit of neck. And then they projected on it all the different things, the different functions like breathing and stuff. It was super informative. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure this one is too. Yeah. I love everything they do. That with the new titanosaur on display. Yeah, that's true. That'll be a good combo. I also saw a picture of a Uteranus model being put together at the American Museum of Natural History, and I'm assuming that they're related. They might have picked that one because it has a bunch of feathers to show that. Could be. How similar they are. Yeah. On the art side, thanks to Frank via Tumblr for this one. So Frank is an artist who lives in the Bay Area in California, and he creates dinosaur art. One of his artworks is this beautiful T-Rex painting, which you can purchase as a pillow. I'm considering it. <laughs> we'll post a link on our site. Your birthday's coming up. It is. <laughs> in St. Louis, Missouri, there's a baby T-Rex walking around Forest Park. Well, it's another person in a T-Rex costume. <laughs> Gina Dollinger, the owner, said, quote, I've seen some adults go into full-blown panic attack. <laughs> the name of this T-Rex is Tinkerbell, and she can move her neck and roar, and the suit weighs 70 pounds, 32 kilograms. Whoever's in the suit uses a handlebar from a bicycle or something like it to move the head, neck, eyes, and mouth. 
Apparently, Gina bought Tinkerbell in May of last year and has spent more than $5,000 on it, including upgrades she made. She and her husband bought it secondhand for $4,600 from someone in Iowa who had bought it in Singapore. However, it could have been a lot more expensive. She said that it was at least $10,000 to make from scratch and can only be made in the UK or in Asia, and that doesn't count shipping costs. Still, this seems like a bargain compared to what we heard from Chris, the owner of Rent-A-Dinosaur, about making a dinosaur in the UK. So Tinkerbell hangs out in the park and she goes to birthday parties and local events and is one of the attractions of Gina's haunted house. It's apparently a big deal. That sounds awesome. Now we're going to have to keep watching the used market to see if... Any T-Rex costumes pop up? Yeah. Or T-Rex puppets? (laughs) Because like $70,000 is impossible to justify but like four thousand dollars it's like well maybe you do a few events every once in a while you could pay for it and then you got this awesome costume depends what kind of upgrades you have to put in it that's true still cool speaking of people in t-rex costumes according to mtv the clay family is the reason why we are seeing so many videos of people in t-rex costumes and these are different from tinkerbell It's the inflatable version that we talked about that came out with Jurassic World. Yes. So this family, the Clay family, they live in New Hampshire and they own four of these costumes. And they were the first ones to make videos of themselves in the costumes. The first costume, I guess, was for a (laughs) three-year-old who named the costume Pickles. And so now this family has a Facebook page called Pickles B-Rex and everyone in the family has worn the costume. I think it's a different size for the three-year-old yeah, than for they, the adult. I didn't see the child size one when I was researching it, but in the picture you can see the kid in the little tiny one. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. So Beth Clay of the Clay family said, quote, as long as it's fun and lighthearted, we'll take it wherever it goes. That's the heartbeat of what Pickles is. Never being negative, never having a fighting dinosaur, end quote. <laughs> so you can purchase a walking dinosaur costume on realdinosaur.com. One of my coworkers sent me this link recently, so they said I could use it to get out of jury duty (laughs) if I show up in a dinosaur costume. (laughs) That's the inflatable one? Yeah. Okay. It looks like one of those dinosaur costumes is what was featured on a recent episode of Workaholics. Those are the walking ones. Those were two people in a costume. Oh, were they the walking ones? Okay, I guess they just made them look similar. In the Workaholics episode, we're talking about there's two life-sized dinosaur raptor puppets chasing the three main characters around a natural history museum. And these dinosaurs are pretty colorful. One was blue and orange, another one was brown and orange. And their mouths actually move as if they're speaking. And at one point, they chant, Brian Henson, Brian Henson, because they give him the credit for being puppeteers, not Jim Henson. Yeah. Although their dinosaurs, like Sabrina said, are pretty colorful, but they're not nearly as realistic as Chris's dinosaur Dexter with a little bit of feathers and more scales and stuff. These look a little bit goofier. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was mostly the mouths moving as they speak. That, that could be too. Goofy. That didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> we'll post a link to that video. There's a clip and we'll post it to our blog. Next up, thanks to Chris via Facebook for this one. On the weekend of March 12th, Discovery in the UK is having a dinosaur weekend, starting with Clash of the Dinosaurs, Monsters Resurrected, Dinosaurs Return to Life, Reign of the Dinosaurs, The Dinosaur Feather Mystery, and it all ends with the premiere of Valley of the T-Rex. Sounds like an exciting lineup. Yeah, that sounds cool. So if you're in the UK. Or any of those countries that get UK channels. Yes. Although, actually, so we're recording this 
on March 12th. So by the time you hear this, the weekend will have passed. But if you're in the UK, we hope you're enjoying a dinosaur weekend. <laughs> Next, Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs is on DVD on March 22nd. And the tagline is, quote, let the best species win. I know we've mentioned this movie before, and it sounds pretty epic. The poster shows a cowboy riding a T-Rex. Here's the official description for you. When Val Walker, Rib Hillis, a former rodeo cowboy, returns to his hometown in search of a job, he isn't exactly welcomed back with open arms. His former flame, Sky, Casey Fitzgerald, is all the wrong kinds of emotional about his return, and nobody in town is hiring people in his position. Needless to say, things aren't going too well, and they only get worse when an explosion at the local mine unleashes a series of dinosaurs onto the town. Using his skills as a cowboy, Val must take on an army of prehistoric beasts if he wants to survive the event and inevitably win back the girl of his dreams. <laughs> I like how normal that description starts, where it's just a guy returning to town and talking about his girlfriend, and then, then it's like, bam, dinosaurs. Mine explodes and dinosaurs <laughs> are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we need to watch that. Yeah, sounds like the right kind of cheesy. Yes. There's also a video on YouTube called Park that shows a scene from Jurassic Park, but without the dinosaurs. So it's got loud background music and the actors saying their lines. So it definitely looks odd. And I think that's what they were going for. And we'll post a link on our site so you can see for yourself. Yeah, I don't know how actors do that. Like pretend like there's something there and being afraid of it and everything. That's what they get paid the big bucks for. I guess so. <laughs> And one last dinosaur movie we have to talk about is The Good Dinosaur, which came out on DVD and Blu-ray, as we talked about. In a recent episode, we gave reviews of the Blu-ray. But anyway, good news. They've made a lot of sales with their DVD slash Blu-rays. Apparently, they topped the national home video sales charts in its first week. I couldn't find a figure for the sales, but the film only grossed $313 million worldwide, which is about a third of what Inside Out made before being released on DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it's constantly compared to Inside Out since that was such a huge success. Mm -hmm. But I did find a website with some numbers, which is actually called thenumbers.com. <laughs> and they don't have the most current results, but they showed that for the first 15 weeks, Inside Out has made just over $100 million in the U.S. alone. And it made $36 million just in the first week which is pretty crazy. That is. So if The Good Dinosaur could even pull in a third of that, that would be pretty sizable. Mm -hmm. And The Good Dinosaur is at a pretty good profit at this point. And since, like Sabrina said, it made at least $313 million worldwide on the theatrical release, and the budget of the movie was about $200 million, that's still not bad. No. Unless there's something I don't know about it, and maybe there's other fees <laughs> and costs. But... Could it be. sounds good. I think it's not great for Pixar, the problem. Yeah. And comparing it to Inside Out and other really popular ones. Mm -hmm. And last on the news, thanks to Chris via Twitter for this one. When I first read it, I definitely misinterpreted and thought he was talking about a real dinosaur. Anyway, Chris sent us a link to Aurorasaurus, which is a, quote, citizen science site where you can report sightings of the Aurora. So if you're into that, we'll be posting a link on our site. You can check it out. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now for the dinosaur of the day, Cryolophosaurus, which was requested from Jill via Patreon as well as Andrew via Facebook. So thanks, guys. The name Cryolophosaurus means cold crest lizard, and the type species is Cryolophosaurus elliotti. And the species is named after David Elliot, who first discovered the fossils. It was a large theropod, and it lived in the early Jurassic in what is now Antarctica. Dr. William Hammer first excavated the bones in 1991. So David Elliott and William Hammer were excavating in Antarctica in 1991, and Elliott's team first found Cryolophosaurus at an altitude of 13,000 feet, or 4,000 meters, about 400 miles or 640 kilometers from the South Pole. Elliott told Hammer about it, and then Hammer excavated it over three weeks. Hammer and another man named Hickerson described Cryolophosaurus in 1994 in the journal Science. They found bones, including a skull and femur, and they found that it was 21.3 feet or 6.5 meters long and weighed 1,025 pounds or 465 kilograms. So it's one of the largest theropods. There's only one known specimen, and it's a subadult, so Cryolophosaurus may have grown even larger. There was a second expedition in 2003 to find more Cryolophosaurus bones, and Hammer and his team found over 100 fossil bones, some of them of Cryolophosaurus. They found that Cryolophosaurus had a primitive brain. In 2013, Vernon Medlinger Chin did an unpublished study of the cranial cavity. It was large and intact enough to give the shape and size of the brain, and the study showed that it was not similar to Allosauroids and Silurosaurus, so Cryolophosaurus would have been some sort of basal theropod. A potential pathology was found in a Cryolophosaurus ankle bone, 
but it could be a unique feature. The small splint from the fibula above the ankle. Cryolophosaurus was the first carnivorous dinosaur found in Antarctica and the first non-avian dinosaur from Antarctica officially named. Scientists didn't find any dinosaur fossils in Antarctica until the 1980s. In 1986, a dinosaur called Antarctopelta oliveroii was found but not named until 2006. That's why Cryolophosaurus is the first officially named since it was named in the 90s. Well, I spent 20 years until they named it. Yeah. So Cryolophosaurus was the top predator in Antarctica. And what's interesting is that it was so large, but large theropods such as Allosaurus didn't live until a few million years after Cryolophosaurus. And Cryolophosaurus had thick muscular legs, but it was lighter and faster than T-Rex. The U.S. Geological Survey found that dinosaurs could live in colder conditions. They're called polar dinosaurs, and they had good night vision, they're warm-blooded, and they could look for food in winter at night. Back when Cryolophosaurus lived, Antarctica was closer to the equator and warmer than modern Antarctica, though it was still fairly cool. Because of the high altitude, this may mean that in the early Jurassic, the area was covered in forests and had a wide range of species on the coast. That means there would have been plenty of food for Cryolophosaurus. But Cryolophosaurus may have been a scavenger. There's some bones that have been found with nibble-like markings, which makes scientists think it was possibly a scavenger. Another dinosaur in the area was Glacialosaurus, that name means frozen lizard, and it was a prosauropod, which would have been too large for Cryolophosaurus to hunt. But maybe it scavenged Glacialosauruses. <laughs> <laughs> Cryolophosaurus probably had sharp teeth that curved backwards to hold prey in its jaws. I guess if it is hunting. We don't know for sure what it did. It had short forearms, so either way, jaws were important. Cryolophosaurus was either a scavenger or it may have gone after juveniles or sick or old glacialosauruses. There's a few long cervical ribs of a prosauropod that were found in Cryolophosaurus's mouth. So in 1998, Hammer concluded that it was eating the prosauropod when it died. But the ribs went all the way into Cryolophosaurus's neck, so it's possible that Cryolophosaurus choked to death on the ribs. Oh. However, a separate study led by Smith said that those ribs belonged to another Cryolophosaurus and not a prosauropod. Interesting. So maybe the ribs were displaced after it died. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting position either way. Yeah. Cryolophosaurus had a high, narrow skull about 26 inches or 65 centimeters long, and it had a crest on its head that ran from side to side that looked like a Spanish comb. It probably used that crest to help recognize species. What does a Spanish comb look like? Kind of like Elvis Presley hair. I was about to get in that. Oh. <laughs> so this curved head crest faces forward, had a nasal crest over the eyes, thin and furrowed. Other theropods have crests, but they usually ran along the skull instead of across the skull. The crest would not have been a good weapon, but it may have been used for display and attracting mates. Cryolophosaurus, the type species, I believe, was nicknamed Elvisaurus because its crest is Elvis Presley-like. <laughs> you can see Cryolophosaurus in the first episode of Dinosaur Revolution. A couple look at their eggs and then a larger male attacks and eats the eggs. You can also see Cryolophosaurus in Primal Carnage and Primal Carnage Extinction. It can spit out poison in Primal Carnage and acid in Primal Carnage Extinction. <laughs> Interesting games. Yeah. And on PBS's Dinosaur Train, there's a recruiting character called King Cryolophosaurus. <laughs> there's also a board book on dinosaurs called Dino Block that has a Cryolophosaurus in it. 
Cryolophosaurus is thought to be a primitive member of Titanure or a close relative. The skull has advanced features, and there was debate over whether it was a Titanurin, Ablosaurid, Ceratosaur, or Allosaurid. Its femur is primitive and actually caused debate over whether it was a Dilophosaurid. But we'll talk about Titanurins here. Titanure means stiff tails and is a clad that includes more theropods. They appeared in the earlier Middle Jurassic, and the clad was named in 1986 by Jacques Gauthier. And it includes all theropods more closely related to modern birds than Ceratosaurus. Yeah, it's a pretty big group, and it does include modern birds. So I always like that when you look and you're like, what's a Titanurin? And you're, you realize that there are a bunch of them around all the, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day comes from the University of California, Santa Cruz. They made a simulation that shows an approximation of the mega tsunami caused by the Chicxulub impact. Because as soon as I saw the word mega tsunami, <laughs> I had to go down that rabbit hole. So just to talk about mega tsunami for a second, a mega tsunami is basically what you think of when you think of the word tsunami. It's a huge wave coming in and, you know, going everywhere. A real tsunami tends to be slower than that. But a mega tsunami is really the crazy version that people imagine in like a movie like, what was that one? Day After Tomorrow, where there's water like, flying everywhere, destroying cities and stuff. Those are mega tsunamis. So since Santa Cruz is right on the ocean, they have a lot of oceanography. And there's this physicist there that does simulations of different impacts and landslides and things and how big these mega tsunamis or tsunamis would be. So he estimated that the water would be vaporized at the impact site. But just outside of it, a approximate 100 meter or 330 foot high wave would have propagated. Since it was near the coast of Mexico, it would have been hit with about a 30 to 50 meter or 100 to 160 foot wave. And 20 to 30 meters or 70 to 100 feet waves would have hit the Gulf of Mexico side of the U.S. There are much more extreme numbers that have been published by other groups, but one thing that the creator of this simulation pointed out was that the water was only about 100 meters deep at the impact site at the time, so he thinks it would have been really difficult to make a wave that was much bigger than that. And there have been much larger waves created even within the last 10,000 or so years due to landslides in deeper water. But obviously, they didn't have nearly the energy or nearly the impact that the Chicxulub impact had. They just happened to make a bigger wave due to the physics of the area. But the really crazy thing about the Chicxulub impact is the amount of material that was redistributed, like we mentioned earlier. So those 48,000 cubic miles that I was trying to get into some kind of figure that I could imagine... It would have been enough material to fill the Great Lakes nine times, which is insane. Because if you know the Great Lakes, they're so wide that you can't see across any of them, and they're huge. So filling them nine times is crazy. Another way to put that is if you have the current configuration of continents and all the land that's sticking out of the water, and you shifted 4.4 feet or 1.3 meters of dirt off of it, into the water, that's how much <laughs> material got moved around. And I'm sure a lot of that was just material that was already in the Gulf of Mexico getting stirred up, but it's still a crazy amount of material. Yeah, that is. And on that note, 
That wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoy the podcast, like what we're doing, like hearing more about dinosaurs, then please support us. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time. Good